0: Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Saturius Johnson. Join me and we'll explore a few of the people, places, and activities that make California one of the world's great travel destinations. You've probably heard of California cuisine, but do you know what it is and where it came from? Food & Wine Editor-in-Chief Hunter Lewis will join us to discuss the origins of this movement and how you can experience California cuisine today. A lot of roads lead back to California. It is the place to eat and dine in America
1: today. It's got the best farmers markets. It's got the convergence of the best talent. You know, and I'm not just talking about the Bay Area or LA. It's the small towns. It's, it's
0: mid-market cities. And one of the world's greatest rock climbers shares secrets about his favorite haunts in and around Sonoma County. Plus, we'll get some insider tips for planning a trip to Yosemite.
2: The first thing you should do is take the two-hour open-air tram tour. Um, in two hours, you're gonna see all the major sites of the valley, An interpreter is at the front telling you all kinds of great natural history information. It's fantastic.
0: And that's just the beginning. There's a lot more to discuss when it comes to visiting Yosemite National Park. It's all coming up on California Now. Welcome to California Now. Our mission is to introduce you to some of the amazing people and places that make the Golden State such a fascinating destination. Today, a big-picture look at the movement that changed the way this country cooks and eats. It's called California Cuisine, and broadly speaking, it's a movement that over the past four decades has stressed the use of fresh local ingredients and the artistic expression of chefs and the restaurants they inhabit. Our well-qualified guide is editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine, Hunter Lewis. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Hunter. Thank you, Sirius. Good to be here. So tell me, did my description of California cuisine hit the mark? It's an expression that gets tossed around a lot, and I feel like it means different things to different people.
1: No, I think you're spot on. I mean, it it does mean different things to different people, um, but it's absolutely about highly seasonal, very fresh and vibrant ingredients. What was originally Italian and French technique applied to them, and then whatever the vibe of the chef was and the personality of the chef that, that came through. And, you know, it certainly evolved over the years. And um, it, it went from California to New York and then back to California again. So, you know, we're, we're basically in the uh, the fourth decade of, of redefining what California cuisine
0: means. So I'm curious, where did it all begin? Is there a like a seminal moment in the history of California cuisine? Well, really, it was two moments um,
1: in two venues. Uh, people in the know about you know, the most seminal restaurants in the country, they're, they're, they'll point first to Chez Panisse and, and Berkeley. You know, that was really ground zero for a ton of innovation, for a restrained and, and refined approach to country French cooking through the eyes of Alice Waters and her contemporaries like Jeremiah Tower and everybody that came after them, you know. But what's so fascinating is that there was also this concentration of talent down in L.A., and it was all coming together um, at the same time for this new kind of zeitgeist. And you had chefs that were willing to experiment. You had chefs that were pushing the envelope that weren't restrained by any kind of rules. And that spirit and that individuality is, was also a big precursor for what we now know as California cuisine. You know, and, and we're talking about some of mm-hmm. the greats, names like uh, Michael McCarthy and Jonathan Waxman, uh, Mark Peel... Um, certainly Nancy Silverton, you know, who is still redefining what it means to this day in L.A. Well,
0: it's funny. I was going to ask you if there was a Mount Rushmore of California cuisine whose faces would be carved into the stone. And it kind of sounds like you, you answered that question there. But where, who would be like, say, your top four or five people? Well, I think um,
1: Alice Waters certainly has to be up there. Jeremiah Tower, who many see as um, as the guru of it. Um, I'm biased because Waxman's uh, a mentor and a good friend and uh, my former chef. I would say Waxman's (laughs) up there because he's he's the one that brought it east in the '80s. Um, Nancy Silverton, you know, and then I think we need to put somebody new up there. And I think that uh, that stone is yet to be carved. But as it constantly is is redefined in the state of California, you know, I think we've we've got to pay homage to um, all of the influences that make. California is such a delicious place to eat. So you know you've got to look to Mexico, you've got to look
0: uh, to Korea, to China, to Japan. And if I'm not mistaken, at least a few of the people you mentioned are, are still running restaurants today, right? Almost all of them.
1: You know, the only person that I mentioned that's not running a restaurant right now is Jeremiah Tower, who you know who's who is now a, a new face to younger generations, thanks to the documentary uh, "The Last Magnificent" that was one of Anthony Bourdain's last projects. Uh, you know, hmm. it's given new life to the, to the mystique about Jeremiah Tower, and uh, he's now doing pop-up dinners and, and restaurants across the country. He's now speaking again at different food festivals. Um, and, you know, he, he is leaving his home in, uh, in Mexico where he scuba dives and get, gets back to basics, and he's up back on the road now
0: and, and cooking a lot which is good for everybody. Uh, you, you recently wrote a moving story about the American food writer Richard Olney for Food & Wine. Why Olney? And and how does a man born in Iowa who lived most of his life in France come to have such an influence in California? Well, you know, what's fascinating about Olney is
1: that we're talking about the, the birth of California cuisine and what was happening in Berkeley and what was happening in L.A. Olney was really a touchstone. You know, At, at the dawn of, of America's Culinary Awakening, these now stars and and the chef firmament were looking to only in the work that he was doing in the south of France. Um, really, as the lodestar, and it was only who was teaching them through his writing uh, and later through his visits and uh, and hosting them at their table. He taught them about technique, sure, because he was a technician, uh, but really he taught them the lessons of of being uh, what he called at table. You know, and that that was the joy. Of gathering around the table, of marking each course with a killer wine, um, the vibe of, of cooking through the seasons, and chefs and restaurateurs like Jeremiah Tower, um, who eventually became Only's lover uh, and good friend, and and also Only's good friend Alice Waters. You know they they looked to Only as the master, you know, and as somebody who could mm. channel the lessons. Uh, the age-old lessons of the French table for the American public. When we talk about the dawning of American cuisine, we're really talking about the late 70s. You know, right, before right. then, cuisine was considered French, you know, some Italian. Uh, and then you had all these micro-regional cuisines, especially in the American South and, and places like New Orleans, where the population had their own thing going on. But cuisine as we know it in America today didn't really come off the ground until the late 70s you know and people like Richard only were highly uh influential.
0: So so you know it sounds like pairing great food with great wine is is a core component of California cuisine.
1: Yeah and I think as um as the wine industry has really emerged over the past 4 decades as well um you know you've got this amazing cuisine and then you layer on uh incredible winemaking on top of that um then you start to get more experience and the art of hospitality. And that's what makes California overall a, a world-class dining
0: destination. Now, now you're a chef as well as a food writer and editor. Did, did folks like Olney and the giants of California cuisine inform the way you cook as well as the way you eat out? I mean, who, who are your biggest influences? Absolutely.
1: You know, when I was just beginning to, um, to come up as a line cook in New York City, um, I went up to Jonathan Waxman, my my new boss, and I said, you know, could you could you provide me a list of the, the ten cookbooks I need to read uh to better understand your style of cooking? And he pointed me to Alice Waters, Richard Olney, Paul Bertoli, Elizabeth David, you know, those are the five big ones. Um uh, mm. and, and also Judy Rogers um of, of Zuni Cafe. You know, and these were the books that became a part of my reference library. You know, and these are the books that, uh, at first, I was learning. You know how to pre-season chicken, and you know how only might break down a lamb shoulder. But really, what this is about is is a sensibility more than anything, a food philosophy, and that takes time to um, that takes time takes time to create and to build. You know. First, it's about technique, and then it's about confidence. And then once you have that confidence, you can step back and understand, oh, wait, this is really about a vibe. This is about a sensibility. This is about the way that somebody feels when when they walk into the restaurant and, and the things that they're smelling and um, the wine that they're drinking and, and the experience that they're having. And really, to me, um, when we talk about California cuisine and we talk about uh, those cookbook authors and those chefs that I mentioned... You know, it's the vibe that they're
0: creating. You know, you bring such an appreciation for the history behind uh, California's place at the center of America's food culture. What about the next generation of chefs and restaurants? Who do you think is carrying the torch for California cuisine these days?
1: Well, I think it's a wild world right now. You know, if you look at what's happening across California, you know, I, I think that folks in my position and people that are, are looking for uh, the best chefs the best dining destinations, the best experiences. You know, as we think about travel itineraries for our readers, a lot of roads lead back to California. You know, it is the place to eat and uh, and dine in America today. It's got the best farmer's markets. It's got uh, the convergence of, of the best talent. You know, and I'm not just talking about Northern California and, and uh, the Bay Area or LA, uh, which is certainly what the place that everybody's talking about right now. But you know, it's, it's the small towns. It's, um, it's mid-market cities. You know, having cooked in, in Northern California, I can tell you that the level of food knowledge of the average diner was higher um, than, than that of, of the diners in New York when I was cooking there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with understanding what good ingredients are. I think it has to do with the fact that you can get incredible uh, cuisine – whether it's a white tablecloth or you're eating at a bar.
0: So, so let's get into some specifics here. Um, where are some places, you know, we need to hit if we want to experience what's really hot in California cuisine right now, whether it's, you know, particular cities or actual restaurants? Where, where do, what do we need to know about?
1: Well, I mean, I think I'd, I'd start with two food and wine best new chefs in California. Katiana Hong at the Charter Oak is doing amazing things, and, and she came up through the school of... of um, Meadowwood. Um, and her cooking is is bold and brassy and uh she tends to this beautiful open hearth uh, that flavors much of the food that comes out of the restaurant and paired with great great wine from the region. We're also high on uh, Jonathan Yao who is the best new chef down in the l a area um you know he's a a twenty six year old probably twenty seven by now wonder kind um, and he's cooking taiwanese food that that uh that he's recreating from taste memory and, um, you know, through research with friends and family, you know, but it's strikingly original and, and really bold and confident. I think if if you're making a list about where to eat in LA right now, certainly Rustic Canyon's on that list. Um, everybody continues to talk about Travis Lett and what he does at Jelena and Justa. you know, and then we talked about Nancy Silverton at, at the opening of this uh, broadcast. And I think Nancy Silverton, to me, uh, you know she's she's an og um she's been there she's <laughs> done that but but she is also um you know she's such a star and 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 she's so influential um, to multiple generations you know people still flock to nancy for advice for career advice um, you know she's still in her kitchens every day con- uh, continue to reinvent and you go sit at the bar at one of her restaurants and and um you know it's it's a it's a modern experience. It's not a look back.
0: So, so for somebody planning a California cuisine inspired road trip, are there any essential stops like farms or farmers markets, that sort of thing? And you mentioned, you know, you don't have to be in the LA area or in Northern California. So we, this, can, this can take us anywhere in the state. Well, I mean, for me, the strength
1: of, of great California cuisine is built on ingredients. You know, you can't have a cuisine without great ingredients. So, you know, Two of my very favorite markets in the world are the Farmers Market outside the Ferry Building in San Francisco, and right. the Santa Monica Farmers Market uh, down south. You know, so for me, you know, start at one of those and either head uh, south or head north. Uh, <laughs> those are incredible markets. They're they're great markets to to shop and, uh, and and to plan dinner around. But they're also great markets to to grab a bite at. I mean, there is a there's a vendor at the Ferry Building in San Francisco that does gorgeous rotisserie. And what I'm talking about is is a big line, you know, several dozen people deep, lining up for porchetta sandwiches. And the pork is coming off the spit, and it's getting sliced, and it's got a crackling skin, and the vendor is taking bread rolls, and he's wiping that uh, pork juice from the cutting board onto the bun, the bread, the inside of it, uh, and then sandwiching the meat in between that. And people are just walking away with this thing in hand, you know, it's dripping <laughs> down their, their arm and they're just, they're, they're smiling. They're so happy. <laughs> that place is
0: awesome. Oh my God, you're making me hungry now. Hunter Lewis is editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine. He has also worked for Southern Living, Bon Appetit and Savor. Thanks so much for joining us on the California Now podcast. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the California Now podcast. I'm Satirius Johnson. Coming up, we'll take a tour of Yosemite National Park with Anne-Marie Brown. But first, we'll talk to a climber who made his name in Yosemite about his hometown in Sonoma County. You're listening to the California Now Podcast. I'm Satirius Johnson. Kevin Jorgensen catapulted to fame in Yosemite National Park when he and Tommy Caldwell became the first to free climb the Dawn Wall of El Capitan, but he was born and raised in lovely Santa Rosa, California, located in the heart of Sonoma County. In this lightning round, we'll ask Kevin to list some of his favorite things to do in and around Sonoma. Welcome back to the California Now podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So we all know that Sonoma County suffered through a a difficult time last fall with the wildfires that also hit Napa and Mendocino counties.
3: As bad as it was, it certainly seems like the region has, has bounced back really well. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a long road to recovery. But, you know, the people in the place are, are resilient and we're re- rebuilding. And, you know, we hope people continue to come visit and appreciate everything Sonoma County has to offer. Well, that's fantastic to hear. I, I
0: love that part of California. And in this lightning round, we're going to ask you to share some of your favorite places to go and things to do in and around Sonoma County. So you up for it? Let's do it. Let's start in the great outdoors. What's your favorite, your absolute favorite way to spend
3: time outside in Sonoma County? That one's easy. Um, I love being on the coast. I think we have one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world. So it also happens to have great climbing along that coastline as well. But even if you Hmm. don't climb, it's just stunningly beautiful, whether you're in Jenner or you're up in Salt Point State Park or at Fort Ross or all the way up the coast, uh, where the Klamath hits the ocean. I mean, our coastline is amazing, and I love spending time there. That's what's great about this area is you can experience it however you want, you know. Um, You can be in the same place. You look to your left, you have someone bouldering over the sand, and you look to your right, you have someone taking a nap, and then you look in the ocean, and there's people bodyboarding or surfing or whatever you want. So really, it's kind of pick-your-own-adventure amongst one of the most beautiful places ever. That's so great. Okay, so
0: now it's time to fuel up. Do you have a, for, a favorite place for breakfast or lunch? You know, maybe a Saturday morning kind of spot.
3: Yeah, this one's also easy. Um, favorite restaurant is going to be Peter Lowell's in Sebastopol. It's great farm to table food uh, made with love. They they cater uh, my wedding. It just they feel like family, and and the food is just incredible. You know, I've had three meals a day there before. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what about a a place for a nice dinner, say a spot
0: for a celebration or a special meal?
3: Yeah. Again, um, Peter Lowell's is great. They have a sister restaurant called Handline, which is a great dinner. Uh, My wife and I recently went to Seared in Petaluma, which is delicious as well. Um, Sonoma County just has so much to offer when it comes to food. It's one of my favorite things about the area. And it also has a lot to offer when it comes to wine, being wine country. So I have to ask you about the grape juice. Do you have a, a favorite winery or two? You know, I've really come to know and love the folks at Iron Horse. They're based just outside of Sebastopol. And a buddy of mine brought a couple bottles of their bubbly to the top of the Donwall Wall that we celebrated with when we got up there. <laughs> and afterwards, we, we went and visited the winery and the winemakers and the owners and... Everyone over there from, from Joy to Kevin to everyone who makes the wine there is just, uh, they're the best. And their, their wine is incredible. That sounds great.
0: You know, when you think of Sonoma, you don't necessarily think of beer. You think more of wine. But their, their beer scene is actually off the charts. Where do you go for an IPA or, or some other malted beverage?
3: Oh, I know. I mean, the, the micro brew scene in Sonoma County is just exploding. Uh, people travel from all over the world just to to come drink beer here. It's crazy, but it's understandable. It's also really, really good. So I think we're probably best known for Russian River, but there's also a lot of smaller breweries that um, are amazing as well. One of my favorites right now to go to is called Hen House. They make uh, great IPAs and all different styles of beer. Okay, here's the last
0: one for you. Tell us something about Santa Rosa or Sonoma County that we probably don't know. Share
3: a hidden gem about your hometown. A hidden gem about my hometown. It just just depends what you're looking for. One of my favorite hidden gem coffee shops is tucked away on South A Street down this alley that's full of art as you walk down it. And you wouldn't even know that you were walking to a coffee shop when you get there. <laughs> but you, you just emerge into this little courtyard and uh, great pour over coffee. Don't go there if you're in a rush. It's gonna take a while put your feet up, you feel like you're in someone's backyard. The coffee scene, I would say, rivals the beer and wine scene as well. Thanks so much, Kevin. You've conquered your first ever California Now lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
0: Thanks for having me. Kevin Jorgensen made history in 2015 when he and Tommy Caldwell became the first to free climb the Dawn Wall in Yosemite. Kevin plays a starring role on the newest episode of Johnny Mosley's Wildest Dreams as he escorts the Olympic gold medalist on a rock climbing adventure in the High Sierra. For links to all the places we mentioned today, go to visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. You're listening to California Now. My next guest, Anne-Marie Brown, has been writing about California's wild places for more than three decades. She's the author of 14 travel guidebooks and hundreds of magazine articles about exploring the Golden State's outdoor wonderland. Her books are available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, REI, and your local bookstore. Anne-Marie, welcome back to the California Now podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Satyrus.
0: You know, I'm, I'm new to California, and I'm trying to fill out my to-do list in terms of travel around the Golden State. Everybody tells me how amazing Yosemite is. Is, is it really true?
2: Yeah, it really is true. I, I'm not going to lie to you. Yosemite is one of the world's great places, for sure. Um, and if you go, you know, the hardest part is deciding how to fit everything in because it's a really big park. And it's a seasonal park. There are parts of it that are open year-round. There are parts of it that are only open certain times of the year. So you have to kind of decide what you want to do and schedule your trip around that.
0: So what makes makes the park so special?
2: Well, I think – everybody has seen the amazing photographs. You've seen them on calendars. You've seen them on Instagram. You've seen them everywhere. The photographs of Half Dome, that wonderful bald face split open, huge piece of granite. You've seen the waterfalls, Yosemite Falls, Vernal Fall, Nevada Falls, Bridalville Falls, El Capitan, which is the single largest granite piece of earth on, single largest piece of granite on earth. Um, so it's got all these natural wonders that just don't exist anywhere else. And most of them are clustered in a very small area, which is Yosemite Valley. So that's only a seven-mile-long valley within this very, very, very large park. It's actually only 1% of the park, but it's the place where 90% of the visitors spend most of their time. Uh,
0: Your book about Yosemite is filled with hundreds of pages on on Yosemite. But I'm going to put you on the spot right now and ask for your single best piece of advice – What's your number one tip for hacking Yosemite?
2: Okay. I'm going to say this. If you're hacking Yosemite, you're probably a first-timer. And if you're a first-timer, here's the thing. You want to get to Yosemite Valley, and you want to park your car. And the reason is, you know, it's a small space, right? So the less cars, the better. And there are so many great ways to see Yosemite Valley without driving. And it doesn't mean you have to walk or do anything particularly strenuous – The best way, the first thing you should do is take the two-hour open-air tram tour. Um, In two hours, you're going to see all the major sites of the valley. You're not stuck in an enclosed bus. You're in a nice open-air tram. An interpreter is at the front telling you all kinds of great natural history information, human history information about the park. And you're going to get a solid overview in two hours. And... No, no fighting for a parking spot, right? It's it's fantastic. So after you finish that, the next thing I think again is leave your car alone and go run a bicycle. Or bring your own if you can, but you can also rent them right in Yosemite Valley, and then go around and ride to all the places that maybe you got a, a little bit of a highlight of on your on your tram tour, and you want to see more of. The bike paths go right by Yosemite Falls. They go right through a El Capitan meadow. You can go to Curry. Uh, you can go to underneath Half Dome. So there's so many choices. And um, again, if you're if you're not having to hassle with a car, you're just going to have a much better time.
0: And I'm assuming that, that you're talking about visiting Yosemite, what, from the spring through late fall, maybe? Or when? Are, when's the best time to go?
2: Well, here's the thing, is I think most people think of going to Yosemite in the summer months, let's say May to October. But honestly, Yosemite Valley is open all year round. And if it's me, I'm going to try and go in the off season because that way I'm going to have, have a lot less crowds to deal with. I'm going to have... A lot better chances of getting fantastic photographs without maybe even another soul in the picture. So I think if you're a first-timer, you could go in the summer. And it's certainly – Yosemite Valley is spectacularly beautiful in the summer. The meadows are all green. The trees are leaved out. It's a beautiful time to go. The waterfalls flow like crazy from about March until June, July. Um, Wonderful time to go. But if your first time is in January, you're going to see the park in a really special way that most visitors don't see, and you're going to see it without a lot of the crowds.
0: So so going in the wintertime is not really a problem. I would think that there would be a lot of problems with snow, but I guess that's only in the elevations, right, in the high elevations?
2: Yeah, that's right. Now, now, again, Yosemite Valley is only a very small portion of the entire park, and so much of the park is closed due to snow. The roads are not plowed in the wintertime. Uh, Tioga Pass Road, which leads up to Tuolumne Meadows, is closed most years from about mid-November until it can be as late as June, sometimes even heavy snow years even into July. So big parts of the park are closed. Wow. But again, if if you're first-timer and you really want to see Yosemite Valley, you can go any month of the year. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of the most best secrets is that the parks open 24 hours a day And 365 days a year. So you're not just tied down to going in the summertime.
0: So for somebody who is maybe tied to the high season, maybe they've got kids, so they have to take their vacation in the summertime, what's a good strategy to to kind of visit Yosemite without you know, facing a lot of uh, maybe traffic or people. Can you go like during certain times of the week or maybe during a certain month of the summer as opposed to another one?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think strategy is a good word for thinking about how to approach, uh, especially Yosemite Valley in the summertime. Um, Weekdays are certainly less busy than weekends. I like to go early, early in the morning. It's interesting to me that most park visitors don't get up and get moving until 9 or 10 o'clock. So oftentimes, even in July and August, the valley floor is pretty empty between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning. And that's a wonderful time for taking photographs.
0: That's great. So you can actually just get up early, start your day early and avoid the crowds on the valley floor where a lot of the sites are. But say you wanted to go beyond uh, the valley to kind of get into some of that other 90, whatever, 7% of the park is. uh, What's a good way? what What are the sites that I would need to see to really get an amazing Yosemite experience there?
2: Well, I think the first must-see outside of Yosemite Valley is probably Glacier Point. And Glacier Point is about a 45-minute drive from the valley. Uh, You can actually take a bus there. You don't have to drive yourself, or or you can. Um, And it is considered one of the grandest views in the west. Uh, This is an overlook point that's at 7,600-some feet in elevation. And it's looking out directly across to Half Dome. You can see Vernal and Nevada Falls. You can see... All of Half Dome's Granite Neighbors, it's like a banquet of peaks out there. Um, and honestly, it's the kind of place I could just sit there all day and just stare at the scenery. And I think a lot of people choose to do that. So Glacier Point's kind of a messy. And the neat thing about that is that it's at the end of Glacier Point Road. And along that road, there are several places where you can stop and take short hikes. So I always tell first-time visitors that they absolutely must take the short hike to Sentinel Dome and Taft Point, which is just a couple miles before Glacier Point. And those hikes are very short. They're each about 2.2 miles round trip, so families, children can do them. And you end up getting unbelievable – vantage points on Yosemite Valley, I mean, really, uh, just all encompassing looking down 4000 feet straight below you at little teeny tiny cars in the valley and the Merced River floating through. Um, And you're doing it on foot, right? So that immediately eliminates a lot of a lot of the crowds. So stop, take a few hikes, get out there and enjoy nature and Yosemite the way it's really meant to be seen, which is on foot, I think.
0: You know, Emory, when you talk about hiking, I, I imagine that there, there are probably different levels of difficulty in the hiking. Do you have to be a very fit person to uh, to take part in some of these hikes? I mean, can you do it as somebody who's like a relatively sedentary person or for kids or for maybe somebody who's older? Uh, are there different levels of uh, hiking that you can do in the park?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I, I would say Yosemite, probably more than a lot of other parks, really, truly has trails for all levels of hikers. So uh, we're talking about some hikes that are as short as maybe Pothole Dome out of Tuolumne Meadows, which is about a half mile to the top of a dome and a half mile back. And most people who are even, you know, relatively fit can certainly do that and still have plenty of energy left to do other things. If you wanna do something super strenuous, you can get a permit way in advance and go climb Half Dome. You can—you uh, don't need a permit to climb some of the other peaks like Cloud's Rest. Those are much more demanding hikes. So for seasoned, hardy hikers, there's plenty to do, but certainly even for families with little children or for people who just don't get out and hike that much, there are a lot of options. And the nice thing is Yosemite Valley uh, puts out a newspaper. You can pick it up at all the entrance stations when you come into the park, and it lists a whole bunch of hikes and and what the level of difficulty is. So you want to pick something that's well-suited to your skill level.
0: All right. So we talked about Glacier Point. We talked about Tuolumne Meadows. What are, what are some of the other uh, you know, areas of the park that I really must see that are kind of off the beaten track outside of the valley um, to, to really make an unforgettable Yosemite experience?
2: Well, Soterios, I think if you're going to go to Yosemite, you have to go see the giant sequoia trees. These are the sequoia that are the largest trees on Earth by volume. So it doesn't mean that they're the tallest, but it means when you look at their girth and their height – They are the biggest living things on Earth, and uh, they're absolutely amazing to see. Uh, Of course, Yosemite has a neighboring park to the south, Sequoia National Park, that's very famous for sequoias. But Yosemite has its own three separate groves of sequoias. Uh, The Mariposa Grove is the largest and and the most famous of the groves in Yosemite. That's in the south part of the park down in Wawona. But if you want two quieter groves, there's the Merced Grove and the Tuolumne Grove, which are both on the west sides of the park off Highway 120. And those two groves, I'd say they're my favorites. And the nice thing about those is you can visit them easily in the wintertime as well. You can snowshoe down to either grove and sit among these giant trees. Uh, or in the summer, you can take a walk it's shady it's cool for the most part and um, you know there's, there's <laughs> it's, it's a good way to feel humbled, I think to be a small person standing next to these absolutely <laughs> massive trees
0: amazing so let let's hit one more place one more highlight that I need to hit in Yosemite to to really get the most out of my trip there.
2: yeah well, I think I think you can 't talk about Yosemite and not talk about waterfalls, right because um, Yosemite is known as having the tallest free-leaping waterfall in North America, and that's Yosemite Falls. It's actually three separate cataracts, uh, upper falls, lower falls, and the middle cascades. Totals 2,426 feet in height, so nearly a vertical half-mile, wow. right? And the neat thing about it mm. is it's in Yosemite Valley, and you can see it from pretty much anywhere in the valley, just driving around in your car, taking the tram tour, you're going to see Yosemite Falls. But there's a wonderful, easy one-mile loop trail that travels right to its base and Anybody can hike part of that. In fact, some of it's wheelchair accessible as well. Um, So that one-mile loop is sort of a must-see in Yosemite Valley, especially when the falls are really flowing. I always tell people if they're going in the springtime, they have to bring their rain gear because when you stand at the base of Lower Yosemite Falls in March, April, May, you're going to get drenched. There's a lot of water coming down there.
0: So what would you say to somebody who was, you know, planning their trip in California and they were kind of on the fence about visiting, making the, the, the trip down to Yosemite? What would, what would you say to them?
2: Well, you know, there's a famous story about uh, a park visitor who walks into the ranger station and says, Hey, I only have one day in Yosemite. What should I do? And the park ranger says, Well, if I only had one day in Yosemite, I'd just sit down and have myself a good cry. Right? <laughs> So ideally, you're not going to miss Yosemite, and ideally, you're going to spend more than one day. We're talking about a park that's uh, almost as big as a a couple of the small states in the United States. So, So you need time, and I think maybe the biggest mistake new travelers make is that they don't plan enough time in Yosemite. They don't realize how large the distances are from one destination to the next.
0: Anne-Marie Brown is the author of 14 travel guidebooks and hundreds of magazine articles about exploring the Golden State's outdoor wonderland. Her books are available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, REI, and, of course, your local bookstore. Anne-Marie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Saturius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. Hunter Lewis told us about California cuisine today, noting that the Golden State has evolved into one of the best food destinations anywhere. It truly has. And for anybody seeking inspiration about where to dine on their next trip out here, check out the California Dream Eater. In this video series, host Chase Ramsey travels all over the state, taking viewers behind the scenes at some fabulous restaurants. You'll find these food-focused videos at visitcalifornia.com dream365tv. We hope to see you soon.